So we're in a new series, series called um, When God is Misunderstood, and, and it's about the idea that we don't always understand Scripture, or sometimes we misunderstand Scripture because, after all, Scripture can be difficult, challenging to understand, and communication itself is challenging. We know that when we do kind of short forms of communication, we, we write tweets or we send texts or we write emails, sometimes we're so concentrated on getting things done quickly, getting an answer out quickly, being brief, that we say things we don't intend to say or we're misunderstood. The things that we say are taken the wrong way. That's one form of communication error that happens. Um, the Bible is frequently misunderstood in part because it was translated through a number of different languages from languages spoken a long time ago that none of us here speak. And so sometimes the concepts in the way it's translated are difficult to grapple with. Sometimes it's difficult to understand because we're dealing with a culture and with beliefs and with practices that we no longer are familiar with. Today's verse uh, is the fifth most searched for verse in Bible Gateway last year during a survey of what they, they looked at, how, what people were looking for. And I think the reason is because Romans 8.28 is a very hopeful verse. And at times when things are crashing down around us, we need hope. We need to know that God is with us. And so this is what Romans 8.28 says. And we know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose for them. And we know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love them, love God, and are called according to his purpose for them. Now, there are a lot of famous people who have said kind of similar things to Romans 8.28. For instance, Larry Bird, the famous basketball player, said, I've got a theory that if you give 100% all of the time, somehow things will work out in the end. Or you've heard this before, this too shall pass. That was written by a poet, Edward Fitzgerald, back in the 1850s. Or a more recent version of this too shall pass, don't let the turkeys get you down. Sander Boyton, the, the cartoonist wrote that. Here's an interesting one from a former president of the Mormon church. In my 90 plus years, I have learned a secret. I have learned that when good men and good women face challenges with optimism, things will always work out. Truly, things will always work out. Despite how difficult circumstances may look at the moment, those who have faith and move forward with a happy spirit will find that things always work out. And my favorite philosopher, the philosopher Bobby McFerrin, don't worry, be happy. Don't worry, be happy, right? That's kind of what Romans 8.28 says. Don't worry, be happy, or at least you can interpret it that way. So was Paul sort of like a first century reggae singer? Don't worry, be happy. Well, as we look at today's passage, I hope that we'll come away convinced of God's goodness and reassured that he is with us in the most terrible circumstances. And at the same time, I hope that we'll also push back against kind of a fake Pollyanna Christian optimism that I don't think is really rooted in Scripture. So here's our big idea today. God is good. God is in control. He is moving all of creation and history to a point where his goodness will wipe away evil, sorrow, and suffering. However... Though we live in a world touched by God's goodness, it has not yet been transformed by it. 
So I think there are about lots of ways, but I've boiled this down to kind of three ways that we can interpret Romans 8.28. The first is this. God covers Christians with a spiritual cloak of immunity that keeps bad things away. Or at the very least, Christians don't have it as bad as everyone else. It's kind of like that survivor thing, you get that immunity thing, you know, so you don't get voted off the island. That's kind of sometimes what people think about when they read Romans 8.28. Or two, God only allows bad things to happen to us as a punishment or to make us stronger, sort of like when mom says, eat your vegetables, they're good for you. Or the third possibility, there might be more to Romans 28 than meets the eye. Where do you think we're going to end up? I'll let you think about that for a second. Okay. So let's start out by defining what we mean by good. Good is a little tiny word. We use it constantly. We use it every day. See if you can remember who is associated with these advertising slogans. Mm-mm, good. Campbell's Soup. You have a winner over here. All right. You're in good hands. Allstate Insurance. There you go. Like a good neighbor. State Farm is there. That's right. That's right. How about good to the last drop? Not Folgers. Nope. Maxwell House. Maxwell House Coffee. That's right. Close. And here's my personal favorite. Finger licking good. Kentucky Fried Chicken. That's right. My first job was cooking chicken for the colonel, and he never did tell me the secret recipe, so I'm really bummed about that. Now, the word good turns out frequently in Scripture. For instance, talking about creation. God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. We're talking about God's character. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the one who takes refuge in him. We're talking about God's actions. The Lord is good to those who hope in him, whose hope is in him, to the one who seeks him. And, of course, talking about the qualities that the Holy Spirit instills in us. For the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. All right. So when you say something is good, what do you mean? What does good mean to you? When you call something good, what does it mean? What do you mean? Makes you smile. Makes you smile. Okay, good. Good. Nice job. What does good mean to you? Pardon? Useful, Useful, beneficial. Okay, right. You like it. If it's good, it means I like it. Yes, great. Uplifting. Uplifting. Okay, good. I like that. Good job. Good job. We use that word constantly, and sometimes we don't use it even thinking about it, right? So let's look at, let's keep all these things in mind as we look at... um, this passage today, and look at the idea, are Christians covered in a spiritual cloak of immunity from bad things? No. All right, let's move on to the next point. (laughs) Now look, we don't have to look very far and hard at all to find out that that's just not true. That's not our, our experience. Now the last time David asked me to preach was during the Speaking of Heaven series. And he asked me to preach about the topic, what will we do in heaven? And so the Thursday before I was going to preach at my office, I was climbing up a ladder onto the top of a building to realign this wireless radio antenna 
when the ladder slipped away just as I was stepping off onto the top of the building. And I fell. And I grabbed for the edge of the building, but I missed. And I fell about 15 feet onto a concrete sidewalk right on my right hip. And it hurt a lot. In fact, it hurt so much, I kind of, I thought I'd broken my back. And I fell kind of onto my back, laid on my back, and it was a beautiful day like this. The clouds were in the sky. And I just laughed, and I said, God, this was not what I thought would happen today. Well, it was lunchtime, and it happened at the building I was working on. There was nobody there. Nobody saw me fall. And so I just sat there for a minute, and then I started kind of testing. Okay, I can move my left arm. I can move my right arm. I can move my head. Okay. I didn't fall on my head. I didn't lose my glasses even, so that was really good. But I found I couldn't move my right leg at all. It was just completely immobile. And so my cell phone was still working, surprisingly. Called 911, told them where I was. And pretty soon the paramedics got there. And to make a long story short, I had broken my right hip. And I now have this super-duper titanium hip where the original one that God gave me used to be. And it's probably something you don't know, but a lot of these titanium hips are manufactured in Ireland. And, and oddly, every so often, I just kind of break into this river dance thing, you know? <laughs> and it's like I don't have any control over it. I don't know what it is. Other than that, it works pretty good. So, I can think of a few things God could have done differently if God protects us from evil or protects us from bad things. I mean, he could have said to me, are you sure this is a good idea? Every time I go near a ladder today, somebody looks at me and says, are you sure you should be going up that ladder? But God didn't say anything at the time. Or he could have allowed me to grab a hold of the roof and hang on. I'm not quite sure what I would have done then, but at least I wouldn't have fallen. Or he could have arranged to have a soft bed of petunias down below instead of concrete. But he didn't, and I ended up in the ER. So I don't want to sound ungrateful, and I'm not, because I could have ended up in a wheelchair, and I could have broken my neck and be dead. Um, and it, actually, at the Oro Valley Hospital, the, uh, the surgeon who was on call, the orthopedic surgeon, turned out to be really terrific. Really did a great job. Got me back on my feet very quickly. But God didn't save me from the pain and all the months of rehab that I had to go through. He could have, but he didn't. And we only really need to look around grace in the most superficial way to see all sorts of other even worse examples, far worse examples of tragedy and illness and suffering. In fact, the Romans that Paul was writing to really knew way more about pain and suffering than I do. And so I want us to look a little bit about sort of what the Romans were dealing with at that time. And I want us to start by going back to the beginning of Romans 8, starting in verse 19, and kind of reading the fuller context. Paul says a lot of interesting things here You can read along on the screen if you want, or you can read on your own uh, Bibles or your own cell phones. Um, And if you want to go to mygrace.church, you'll find the scriptures there. Starting at Romans 8, 19. 
For all creation is waiting eagerly for that future day when God will reveal who his children really are. Against its will, all creation was subjected to God's curse. But with eager hope, the creation looks forward to the day when it will join God's children in glorious freedom from death and decay. For we know that all creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. And we believers also groan, even though we have the Holy Spirit within us as a foretaste of future glory. For we long for our bodies to be released from sin and suffering. We too wait with eager hope for the day when God will give us our full rights as his adopted children, including the new bodies he has promised us. We were given this hope when we were saved. If we already have something, we don't need to hope for it. But if we look forward to something we don't yet have, we must wait patiently and confidently. And the Holy Spirit helps us in our weakness. For example, we don't know what God wants us to pray for, but the Holy Spirit prays for us with groanings that cannot be expressed in words. And the Father who knows all hearts knows what the Spirit is saying, for the Spirit pleads for us believers in harmony with God's own will. And we know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose for them. There's a lot there. There's a lot of stuff about groaning and about hardship. Let's boil down a little bit what Paul is talking about in this passage. First of all, he says creation is suffering and groaning under the curse that God placed on sin. And then he said creation is eagerly waiting for God to free it from death and decay. He says we're part of creation, so we're suffering too, and we're waiting too. God promises us relief from our suffering someday. And this gives us hope, but we haven't experienced this relief yet. Not yet. It's off in the future. And yet right now, God is working our sufferings into something good. So who were the Romans that Paul was writing to? Well, the Jews in Rome had been mostly taken there as slaves from way before the time of the birth of Christ. Roman society, they were uh, important contributors to society. Mostly they were slaves. Some of them had been freed and had businesses. Um, and because they were considered to be important to the, the Roman culture, uh, the Roman emperors gradually gave them more and more freedoms and gave them the freedom to, to create, build their own synagogues and to go out and worship as they saw fit. By the time of Jesus' death, there were 40 to 50,000 Jews living in Rome. As word of Jesus' ministry and his resurrection spread, Jews in Rome followed Christ just as they were in Israel. Not all of them, but some of them. And so the Christian church began to, to uh, flourish there in Rome. And traditional Judaism became split. The Christians were on one side saying Jesus was the Messiah. The Jews on the other side were saying Jesus was not the Messiah. There were public debates about this in the synagogues. There were disagreements and, and arguments about it. And the traditional Jews, especially after the Gentiles began following Christ, became even more antagonistic toward the new Christians. So there was a lot of kind of um, uh, dis... The word escapes me. There's a lot of upheaval going on in the Jewish church 
and, and a lot of public, very public debate going on about it. And around 40 AD, the Jewish population had grown so large that the emperor began to feel threatened about the security of the place because of them. And so he revoked the right of the Jews to be able to worship in public. This is a time then when the Christians uh, began meeting in homes and meeting secretly. Emperor Claudius went even further by expelling from Rome all the Jews and Christians that he decided were troublemakers. And then he expanded the order around 50 AD and told all Jews and Christians they had to leave the city. They had to leave their homes. They'd lived there for generations, but they had to be gone. Paul talks about this, or pardon me, Luke talks about this in uh, Acts chapter 18, verse 2. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. There he met a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontius, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had ordered all Jews to leave Rome. Paul went to see them. Sorry about that. After Claudius' death, the Jews were allowed to return home and they gradually went back to their old places and the old conflicts kind of restarted again. Meanwhile, Nero had risen to the throne and at about the same time, there was this great fire that destroyed a good deal of Rome and Nero was blamed for it. Maybe you remember this adage, Nero fiddled while Rome burned. Well, that was really the rap back then. He was told or he was blamed for the fire, maybe through inactivity, maybe through something deliberate that he did. Nero, trying to get out from the blame of that, blamed the Christians for the fire and began the process of rounding them up and executing them in the Colosseum in the Roman games. So it's against this backdrop of conflict and martyrdom and persecution and terror that Paul writes Romans 8.28. And we know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose. But when I read that, when I think about sort of the history of the people that Paul was writing to, I don't think that Paul would claim that Christians are protected from suffering at the same time that they were being arrested and marched off to their deaths in the Colosseum. I think he must have had something else in mind. And so we can take a look at the second possibility. Maybe God only lets bad things happen to us as a punishment or to make us stronger, sort of like when mom says, eat your vegetables, they're good for you. That phrase, I heard that so much growing up. My poor mother. I ran track when I was in junior high school and Coach Brown would have us running laps and running laps until we were gasping for breath and we were barfing our guts out because he said, no pain, no gain, right? You ever heard that before? Have you ever seen uh, the Olympic gymnasts compete during the Olympics? Look closely at them, seen the way their feet are bandaged, their torsos are bruised, their legs, their arms are bruised. They perform these amazing stunts, but they endure a lot of pain to get to that competitive level. So maybe God gives good things to the really super Christians like Pastor Chris and Pastor Dave, and the rest of us slackers have to run laps. Is that possible? It could be. I don't think so. <laughs> I have another friend, Chris, different Chris, who went to prison for selling drugs. And as a last act of anger to the world, he tried to beat up some cops. And of course, they got the better of him. But the root of what got him into trouble was not really drugs, but anger. Anger at himself, anger at God, anger at life. And he was pretty arrogant, too. He believed the law didn't apply to him. He could do whatever he wanted. 
Instead, the law came crashing down on him. While he was serving time in prison, he met Jesus. And in that depressing, horrible place, he began to see and experience God's love and God's goodness. Chris sees that experience as an example of God turning bad into good. And I agree. You can see the difference in his face on the right versus the left, can't you? I mean, he lost his marriage. He lost his friends. He lost his children. He has a record. Did God inflict all of that punishment on Chris to get his attention? That's a good question. When we get caught in a lie or we cheat and we suffer the consequences or we break faith with people who love us and we hurt and destroy our friendships or our marriages, is all of that pain just God trying to get our attention? Well, James talks about this in his letter kind of in the context of temptation. I want to read what he says there. He says, When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. Don't be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters. Every good and perfect gift is from above coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. So James draws this comparison. He says, God doesn't tempt us. God doesn't draw us into sin. Sin creates all sorts of terrible consequences for us. The good things in life that we experience come from God. Every good and perfect gift comes from God. So I think that God doesn't send bad things to us. I don't think that's who God is. I don't think God sends bad stuff our way for whatever reason. I think we do experience suffering sometimes, and sometimes that suffering is because of our own stupidity. The punishment my friend Chris endured came from the state of Arizona. The grace and mercy he experienced came from God. According to the Apostle Peter, God's punishment for all of our sins, past, present, and future, have been laid on Jesus, his son. One terrible act of justice has righted all of our wrongs, has paid for all of our sin. We've been judged, and and, and the payment for that judgment has been Christ's death on the cross. Peter puts it this way in 1 Peter 2, 24. Jesus personally carried our sins in his body on the cross so that we can be dead to sin and live for what is right. By his wounds, you are healed. And that last phrase, you are healed, that verb is, is a completed verb. In other words, there's not further healing that needs to happen. God accomplished in Christ the thing that he needed to do to be able to reconcile us with God. In Matthew 5, Jesus responded to the people who said, Love your neighbor but hate your enemy by saying God sends the monsoon rains on the good and the bad alike. He sends his good gifts on all of us, whether we are good or not, whether we acknowledge Christ or not. I don't think God is vindictive. I don't think he throws lightning bolts of pain and suffering on us. I don't think he withholds withholds good from us either. 
quite the opposite. I think his goodness compels him to pour good things into our lives. I think his nature compels him to love us. Do you know that the Romans didn't have any concept of loving God or being loved by God? It wasn't in their religious practice. They they honored the gods, they served the gods, they gave tribute to the gods, but the gods never loved them and they never loved God. And it's one of the, the huge distinctives of Christianity. We sang this song earlier, Chris Tomlin's song, Good, Good Father. We sang, you are a good, good father, it's who you are. And I'm loved by you, it's who I am. Christianity teaches us that God loves us more than we can imagine. And because of who God is, he can't be anything but good to us. It's who he is, it's his nature. No matter what we do, God's love for us, God's goodness to us are constant. But they can be kind of hard to accept. When I, this is a long time ago, 1969, eons ago, practically two centuries ago, is when I became a Christian. And, and I accepted the fact that God forgave me. I accepted the fact that the cross took away my sin, but I couldn't accept the fact that God loved me. I figured he would realize he'd made a mistake at some point and he'd drop the hammer on me because I was too bad. You ever felt that way? But Paul says this in Ephesians, God saved you by his grace when you believed. And you can't take credit for this. It is a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we've done, so none of us can boast about it. There's grace. We can't take credit for it. It's a gift from God. So I don't think God doles out good and bad like grades on a report card. I don't think salvation is an achievement award. God's love is unconditional. His goodness is lavish. His forgiveness is absolute. And when bad things happen in our lives, they may be the result of our own foolishness. They may be the result of our own sinfulness. But they're never a sign that God has reneged on his forgiveness in Christ. So, we come to part three. Possibility three. Maybe we've misunderstood Romans 8.28. It could be, and this is my theory, that we focus so much on the good part of Romans 8.28 that we kind of lose sight of the rest of the verse. It is true that God is good. It is very true, and it's a wonderful thing. But let's look at it again. It says, And we know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose for them. There's that phrase, God causes everything to work together. So when I read that, I see the creator side of God. Now there's the God is good part, just a little farther on, for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose for them. But God is also creator. And as creator, he is working in our lives and in the history of the world to accomplish something new. It's actually interesting that that, that phrase, God causes everything to work together for the good, or that first part of it, is not really in the Greek. The Greek actually says, everything works together for the good of those who love God. And some of your translations in English probably say the same thing. 
So why does this one say God causes everything to work together when that's not even in the Greek? Well, I think it's primarily because of Paul's own theology. Paul did not believe in the Chinese yin-yang theory, which is that good always balances bad in the world, and the good energy always balances the bad energy, and the two work themselves out. He believed God was sovereign. He believed God was in control. He believed God moves all of history and all of life towards God's purposes. And so they translate it, God causes everything to work together because it's not just like things are working out, but God has a plan. God is accomplishing something that he wants to accomplish. Just as goodness and love are part of God's nature, so is his work as creator. What do you think God is doing right now when you picture God? Is he sitting in his lazy boy recliner with a brew here, watching Super Bowl reruns? Now, I know God is a diehard Seahawks fan, but... Um, but really, is he sitting there just kind of cooling it, chilling it, waiting for the end of time? No. God is at work. God is accomplishing all sorts of things that we cannot even imagine because he is a creator God. He is a God who is building a new place, and it talks about it in Revelation 21. I heard a loud shout from the throne saying, Look, God's home is now with his people. He will live with them, and they will be his people. God himself will be with them. He will wipe every tear from their eyes and there will be no more death or sorrow or crying or pain. All of these things are gone forever. And the one sitting on the throne said, look, I am making everything new. There's that creator God again. I am making everything new. And then he said to me, write this down for what I tell you is trustworthy and true. So, the end game for God is that he is creating a new place where he will undo all of the work of sin and all of the corruption of sin and we will see him face to face and we will live in a place with him where there is no more sorrow and suffering and he himself is accomplishing that. A couple of years ago, the researchers at the Paris Louvre Art Museum discovered that there is a different Mona Lisa painted underneath of the Mona Lisa that we all know and love. It was common for artists in those days, because canvases were expensive, after they had painted something to sometimes say, I can do better, I don't like this, I want to change it. And so they would simply repaint over the original one on the left, was the original Mona Lisa that Leonardo da Vinci painted, to something new, something like better. On the right is the Mona Lisa that's in the Louvre today. They're a little different. The eyes are a little different, and the shape of her jaw is a little different, and so on and so forth. I think God as creator is continually doing something like that with creation. What Romans 8.28 is really saying, I think, is that God sees our pain and he weeps with us. And this good, good father... The creator of the universe is repainting the stories of all of our hurts into his eternal masterpiece. The story of a loving God who's prepared a better home for his children. A home without sin, a home without corruption, a home without death. That's my theory. None of us really knows God's mind. None of us really can understand what God is thinking. And for Thousands of years, Christians have debated about the whole business of good and evil. Why does it exist? Why do bad things happen? What is God doing? 
How does he allow it? Why does he allow it? Even if we look at Jesus in Scripture, we can see from Jesus' life that suffering is somehow part of the the fabric of creation. In the summer of 2014, Carl Mason discovered that he had colon cancer. The family had a big, big summer trip planned, and they had to put that on hold while Carl started his chemotherapy treatment. And then they discovered that their dog had cancer. And then... Mita, Carl's wife, threw her back out, and she ended up one night lying on the floor of her house, unable to move, until Skylar came home and picked her up and helped her up. On July 15th, this is what Mita wrote on her blog. I don't have any pat answers. I won't quote Romans 8.28, you know, the one about all things working together for good. I hate to admit that sometimes I want to punch people in the throat when they quote that verse in a flippant manner or make what we're going, to, going through seem routine or trite. I don't dislike the verse, just people using it to say everything will have a happy ending. Sometimes we don't see the happy ending. Sometimes circumstances stink, period. But that doesn't mean that God has dissed us. Instead, I will repeat what I know to be true. God loves me. He has a plan for me. I have no idea how all this will work out. I do know that he is faithful and will provide all that we need to get through this. How do I know that? Because he has always done so in the past. I can count on him now. I have found his word to be true in every situation we faced, so I have no reason to doubt it now. When all is said and done, I will know him more, and he will be lifted up. In the midst of all of this, I will cry out, Jesus, help! I've fallen, and I can't get up. He will respond. And five days later, Carl was killed in an auto accident and Skylar was really terribly injured. And Mita still stands by what she wrote. We can't really make sense of these horrific events, but we know that God is good and we know that his word is true and we know that his love is unconditional and we know that he is utterly faithful and by faith we believe that he is working everything together for the good of us who love him. And I believe in his own time and in his own perfect and beautiful way, God, our creator, is repainting all of our brokenness into something really beautiful, something we could never imagine. And when he's done, I think he will call it good because he's a good, good father. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, We are often puzzled by hard and difficult things, by suffering, by death, by sickness. We are often distraught. We are often in despair. We are grieved by people that we lose. And yet, in the midst of all that, we really do struggle to maintain our faith, to maintain the belief that you are good, to maintain the belief that you hear us, that you're with us. And the scriptures tell us absolutely that you are good, that you are working all things together for good. But it may not be a good that we will see in our lifetime. It may not be a good that makes sense to us. But you are the ultimate 
provider of good gifts. And we can trust that whatever you do, as you work things together for good, they will in fact really be good, even if they don't quite measure up to what our hopes were. Father, in our hardest moments, in our moments of deepest grief and despair, let us reach out to you and let us hear your voice and feel your comfort. Let us believe that you are working things together for good even when they seem terrible. That you are repainting a beautiful masterpiece over the corruption and the decay that we see in the world all around us. We pray for healing, Father, because we know you are a God who does miracles and we've seen it. We pray that you would step in and lift up those among us who are sick and hurting. And we pray that you would give us hope and confidence in your presence and in your love at those times when we feel abandoned or we feel puzzled or we feel like we don't know which way the world is going because it seems it's all spinning out of control. You are a good, good father. Help us to hold on to that. You love us dearly and unconditionally. Help us to hold on to that fact and help us to draw near to each other and to pray for each other and support each other at those times when life is hard beyond what we think we can bear. We thank you for your word, Father. And we pray that as we consider all the ways in which you've been good to us, that you would make us a people who are thankful, a people who are generous in turn, being good to others as you have been good to us. Lord Jesus, as we go off today, as we finish our time of worship this morning, my prayer is that your Holy Spirit would confirm in our hearts, would reassure us that you are in control, working your plan in all of history, and that we are part of that plan, a loving part of that plan, that you have adopted us as your children, and in Christ you have brought us into your family. Lord Jesus, give us the joy of knowing your presence. Give us the joy of knowing your goodness. Give us the joy of being confident of your love. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.